Welcome to the Paranormal Factor Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Wright. Thanks for stopping by. This is the place to explore mysteries, investigate the otherworldly, and share stories of the inexplicable and the strange. You see, within the realm of our daily, ordinary lives, there is a paranormal factor always waiting to reveal itself. So let's begin exploring together the truly weird. Welcome listeners, and thanks for stopping by. I'm glad you could join me for this new episode where we take up part two of our look into the iconic story of the Roswell incident, a purported UFO crash and recovery of alien bodies at Roswell, New Mexico. This is the podcast's first two-part story, and I'm excited to present it to you. In part one, we looked at what actually occurred in 1947, both what the military reported and the counter-story by ufologists. We conclude our two-parter by looking exclusively at what witnesses say happened and also see why skeptics discount those testimonies and recollections. But before we start, as a reminder, please be sure to take a look at the podcast Facebook page. Fans of the show know it's the best place to find monsters, quizzes with answers given during the next episode, film, TV, and book recommendations, and current paranormal news stories from around the world. Now, on to our episode. This is the quintessential UFO story of a controversial event. On one side is the U.S. military saying it never happened. On the other side are the witnesses who say not only did it happen, but the government engaged in a conspirative cover-up. In our last episode, you listened to both sides and began considering what you believe. That process will continue in this episode as you listen to witness accounts from both military and civilian sources. But before we get to those testimonies, let's do a quick recap from the previous episode. The 1947 Roswell incident, as it's most commonly known, is the rather mundane recovery, at least from the military's viewpoint, of metallic wood and rubber debris from a ranch near Roswell, New Mexico by United States Army Air Force officers from Roswell Army Airfield. But conspiracy theories fueled by witness reports decades later disputed those assertions, arguing the debris had extraordinary properties, involved a flying saucer, alien crash victims, and that the truth had been covered up by the United States government. However, what is indisputable is that something did crash on a ranch near Roswell, New Mexico in July of 1947. What it was, however, is a source of disagreement and controversy even today. Basically, the story is this. Sometime in early July 1947, rancher W.W. W. Brazel found wreckage on his sizable property in Lincoln County, New Mexico, approximately 75 miles north of Roswell. When Brazel heard stories about silvery flying discs on a night out in nearby Corona, New Mexico, he decided to gather up the wreckage he had previously found. On Monday, July 7th, he brought some of the material to Sheriff George Wilcox in Roswell. The sheriff called Roswell Army Airfield and brought it to the attention of Colonel William Blanchard, the commanding officer of the base. The matter was then assigned to intelligence officer Major Jesse Marcel. Brazel took Marcel back to the debris site and the two gathered up more pieces of the scattered wreckage. Marcel took the material to his base commander, Colonel Blanchard. Blanchard reported the finding to General Roger Ramey, commander of 8th Air Force at Fort Worth Army Airfield. 
General Ramey ordered the material flown to Fort Worth, Texas immediately. Marcel made the flight to Fort Worth with the material gathered from the ranch. Meanwhile, back at Roswell, Blanchard held a staff meeting to discuss the incident, and astoundingly, the base released a news report that they had recovered a flying disc from the ranch north of Roswell. However, within 24 hours, there was a stunning development. In a complete reversal of their position regarding the Roswell debris discovery, the Army Air Force reneged on the flying saucer disclosure. The U.S. military said a mistake had been made, and military experts proclaimed that the flying saucer was actually a crashed weather balloon. Of course, early UFO proponents found that story hard to believe. How could elite military intelligence personnel not know the difference between a flying disc and a weather balloon? So the reversal led to speculation in the growing ufology community that a cover-up had occurred. However, the weather balloon explanation was almost universally believed and accepted. Most people and the media seemed satisfied with the military's description, and the story quickly faded. For a few days, the world's attention was focused on Roswell, New Mexico, but soon, while interest in flying saucers and UFOs continued to grow, Roswell disappeared from the narrative. But the story of the Roswell UFO crash was rediscovered in 1978 by nuclear physicist turned ufologist Stanton T. Friedman. Friedman was tipped off that a retired military man had an interesting story to tell, and it was none other than Jesse Marcel, the former intel officer at Roswell Army Airfield. With the floodgates now swinging wide open on Roswell speculations, researchers dug deeper into the mystery, tracking down key players, locating potential witnesses, and attempting to piece together what had happened. A number of retired military personnel who'd been based at Roswell now corroborated elements of the crashed spacecraft narrative, and they added their own details. The new narratives were stunning in their portrayal of events in 1947 and seemed to point to an intentional cover-up and government conspiracy. It's now time for us to listen to some of those accounts. As UFO investigators tracked potential witnesses of the incident and attempted to piece together what happened, the witnesses began falling into two major groups, military and civilians. The following are stories from witnesses to the strange occurrences at Roswell in 1947. We start with those who were serving in the military at that time, many of whom were assigned to Roswell Army Airfield. Jesse Marcel Jesse Marcel famously disclaimed the statements he made in 1947 about the wreckage being a weather balloon in a 1978 interview with ufologist Stanton F. Friedman. Marcel stated the debris he collected was nothing like anything he had seen before. What it was, we didn't know. It was something I had never seen before or since, for that matter, Marcel said. There was all kinds of stuff. Small beams, about three-eighths or a half-inch square, with some kind of hieroglyphics on them that no one could decipher. And they were very hard, although flexible, uh, and would not burn. Over several interviews, Marcel denied ever seeing any bodies but was clear the wreckage was not man-made. I don't know what it was, but it certainly wasn't anything built by us, and it most certainly wasn't any weather balloon. Sergeant Robert Robbins Robbins was assigned to the base as a sheet metal repairman. According to his widow, Anne, he told her he was at the crash site and saw the craft and the alien bodies. He said the object appeared like two saucers slapped together with a row of windows around the outside. He told her one of the aliens had still been alive. At first, he refused to tell her anything. 
He finally relented and said, I guess you might as well know, a UFO crashed outside of Roswell. Steve McKenzie. McKenzie was situated at the radar station and watched the Roswell saucer disappear from the radar scopes. He was also among the contingents sent out to the crash site and witnessed the craft and bodies. We were all smoking cigarettes and talking about how we were going to handle this thing, he said. We were all concerned and a little scared. McKenzie saw the bodies and described them as slender, five feet tall with overly large heads and very large eyes. He saw two dead bodies laying on the ground and two others inside the craft. One was still alive and sitting nearby. That's the one I can't forget. It had this damn serene look on its face like it was at peace with the world, he said. William Blanchard Easley A member of the 509th Bomb Group easily set up the perimeter guards to secure the crashed craft. He ordered a second group of military police to pick up loose wreckage. He noted, The second group scanned quite a large area looking for debris. It was loaded onto a truck and then onto a plane and it took off. Whatever they found was just odds and ends. Major Lewis Rickett Rickett was one of two counterintelligence officers to visit the site. He found some curved pieces of light metal and crouching down tried to snap it in two. He said it didn't feel like plastic. I had never seen a piece of metal this thin that you just couldn't break, he said. Later he and Lincoln La Paz were able to determine there were multiple touchdown sites. The best we could figure out this one was in trouble. Maybe the guidance system on it happened to fail. Captain O.W. Pappy Henderson According to his wife and children, Henderson, who was stationed at the 509th, told them the Roswell crash was true and that he had flown the wreckage to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Ohio. He also witnessed the bodies. He never spoke of the incident over the years until it began to be popularized in the media. He told his wife he had been dying to tell her about it for years, but couldn't because it was classified top secret. Sergeant Robert Smith Smith was part of the group loading the wreckage on an aircraft to ship to other locations. Smith stated the crates were sealed, but everybody knew what was in them. One of the officers on board showed Smith and others a piece of the wreckage he had sneaked from the crash site. Smith was intrigued due to his work in sheet metal. It was foil-like, but was a little stiffer than the foil we have now, Smith said. You could crumple it, and it would flatten back out again without any wrinkles showing up on it. Brigadier General Arthur E. Exon. Early in his career, Exon was stationed at Wright Field, later Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, when the Roswell crash debris came in. He stated the material was tested extensively with chemical analysis, stress tests, and flexing the material. It was brought into our material evaluation labs. I don't know how it arrived, but the boys who tested it said it was very unusual, Exon related. Some of it was flimsy and it was tougher than hell. The other was almost like foil, but strong. It had them pretty puzzled. The metal and the materials were unknown to anyone I talked to. A couple of guys thought it might be Russian, but the overall consensus was that the pieces were from space. Colonel Philip J. Corso. In his book, The Day After Roswell, Corso stated in his capacity as a researcher and evaluator of weapon systems at the Pentagon, his boss, General Trudeau, gave him a box with objects in it from Roswell. It contained objects supposedly from the Roswell craft. He instructed Corso to make use of it. 
Corso further said the seeds for the development of such things as fiber optics, lasers, integrated circuits, accelerated particle beams, and Kevlar and night vision technologies all came from what was found in the Roswell alien ship. He was also witness to one of the alien bodies. At first I thought it was a dead child they were shipping somewhere, he said, but this was no child. Corso described the face as clearly being non-human. Sergeant Matilda O'Donnell McElroy. In 2008, Lawrence Spencer released his book, Alien Interview, where he detailed the notes of then-retired senior master sergeant McElroy. She states she was at Roswell in July 1947 enlisted in the U.S. Women's Army Air Force Medical Corps. She was assigned as a flight nurse at the 509th. When news of the crash occurred, she was ordered to the scene. Once there, she witnessed the craft, three dead occupants, and one living being. She was told to examine the living one for injuries. It was then she reported something stunning. She began receiving telepathic communication from the alien. Over the next two months, she would become a de facto companion to the alien, communicating with it on the Army's behalf. Among other things, the being related the Earth was called a prison planet and told her they were investigating the planet due to recent atomic explosions. Stories also came from the civilian sector. Some were recollections of what they had been told by others who were directly involved, and some were their own direct experiences. Glenn Dennis. Dennis was a civilian mortician in Roswell. He received a series of calls from someone identifying himself as the base casualty affairs officer. In fact, the base had no casualty affairs officer assigned at that time. The caller asked about the availability of small coffins and how to best preserve small bodies. After providing as much information as he could, Dennis decided to drive out to the base and offer his help. He arrived in time to see the bodies and the wreckage. He gained access to the base hospital and ran into a nurse friend who was shocked to see him. She urged him to leave and told him he was in danger. At that point, the military police detained him. Dennis stated that they threatened to kill him if he disclosed anything he had seen. He later contacted the nurse and she described the bodies in detail. She stated she was so sickened by their smell she had difficulty working. The nurse has never been identified. Of the wreckage, Dennis stated, there were inscriptions on a border around part of it. It reminded me of Egyptian inscriptions. Lieutenant Governor and Senator Joseph Montoya. Local Roswell resident Reuben Anaya and his family were friends and supporters of then newly elected New Mexico Lieutenant Governor Joseph Montoya. Anaya stated Montoya was at the Roswell base for an event at the time of the incident. He was summoned by a panicked Montoya to pick him up at a hangar. After picking him up, Montoya told Anaya he had seen four little men along with wreckage. Anaya said Montoya was very, very scared and kept repeating, they aren't human. Once at Anaya's home, Montoya described the aliens as hairless with white skin and wearing tight-fitting one-piece jumpsuits. He told Anaya, I tell you that they're not from this world. He further told Anaya to never reveal it. If he did, Montoya would deny it and swear Anaya was a liar. Montoya, who died in 1978, never made any comment regarding Anaya's disclosures. 
Lydia Sleppy. Sleppy was the administrator at KOAT Radio in Albuquerque on July the 7th when reporter Johnny McBoyle called the station with the story that a flying saucer had crashed near Roswell. Sleppy remembered McBoyle said he had been to the crash site and seen the craft. He was very excited, she recalled. He was sending his report in through the teletype when the machine suddenly stopped. He left the phone for a moment and seemed to be talking to someone else. When he returned the teletype printed out, stop communication immediately. She stated he then told her, forget about it. You never heard it. You're not supposed to know. Don't talk about it to anyone. Loretta Proctor. Loretta and her husband Floyd were neighbors of Mac Brazel. She remembered him bringing a small piece of the wreckage to them and asking what they thought of it. He brought a little sliver of wood-looking stuff up, but you couldn't burn it, uh, you couldn't cut it or anything, Loretta recalled. It was about the size of a pencil, and it was kind of brownish tan. It looked like plastic, of course there wasn't any plastic then, but that was kind of what it looked like. Bill Brazel. The son of Mac, Bill also saw and handled pieces of the crash debris. He recalled, it weighed almost nothing. These were like balsa wood in weight, but a bit darker and harder. And he also handled tinfoil-like substance that would spring back to its original form after crumpling it. Bessie Brazel, the daughter of Mac, Becky was 12 years old when the flying saucer crashed on her dad's ranch. She experienced firsthand the debris scattered over the ranch land, including numbers and lettering on some pieces. She also remembered the family was threatened. We were told not to talk about this at all. Back in those days, when the military told you not to talk about something, it was not discussed. Jesse Marcel Jr. Jesse Marcel's son also was a witness to the strange material when his father brought samples home to show his family. He was particularly struck by the hieroglyphic-like characters found on the beam fragments. Jim Ragsdale Ragsdale was camping with his girlfriend when they witnessed the Roswell craft actually crash. They thought at first it was an airplane crash. They approached the location the next morning and got close enough to view the wreckage and the bodies before Army personnel showed up. Ragsdale said, you could still see where it hit. One side was buried in the ground and part of it was sticking out of the ground. Frankie Rowe. Rowe is the daughter of Dan Dwyer, a Roswell firefighter who responded to the scene and witnessed the alien bodies. Rowe said there were apparently three people in the craft because he saw two body bags and he saw one live person. She recalled her father told her it was a very small being about the size of a 10-year-old child. Her father did not think it was injured because it was walking around. Rose said she and her family were also threatened by the military, being told by military officers they would disappear in the desert if they ever revealed what they knew. The military came up to our house and told us we could never talk about this, she said. As far as we were concerned, they said, the whole incident never happened. But these witness stories were not necessarily believed and accepted by everyone. Skeptics still had plenty to say about their accounts of flying saucers, aliens, and cover-ups. In July 1994, the Office of the Secretary of the Air Force concluded an exhaustive search for records in response to a General Accounting Office inquiry of the event popularly known as the Roswell Incident. The report concluded the material recovered in 1947 
was likely debris from Project Mogul, a military surveillance program employing high-altitude balloons and the classified portion of an unclassified New York University project by atmospheric researchers. But what about the flying disc that supposedly crashed? Kendrick Frazier, editor of The Skeptical Inquirer, says what rancher W.W. Mac Brazel reported finding on his ranch 60 miles northwest of Roswell was simply this. Debris consisting of a large number of pieces of paper covered with a foil-like substance and pieced together with small sticks, much like a kite, and also some pieces of gray rubber. All were small and hardly some high-tech alien flying saucer, Fraser says. Brazel himself never claimed to have found a flying saucer. Even in Marcel's updated account in the 1970s, he made no mention of a flying disc being found, only debris. And neither Marcel or Brazel made any mention of aliens at the crash site. What about the alien hieroglyphics that many reported seeing on pieces of debris? Professor Charles B. Moore was the man who helped launch Flight 4 for Project Mogul. In 1947, Moore was an NYU graduate student working on the balloon launches. He spent the rest of his career as a respected professor of atmospheric physics at New Mexico Tech in Socorro, New Mexico. When interviewed, Moore provided a new and interesting detail. The reinforcing tape used on the NYU targets had curious markings. UFO believers later described these markings on the debris Brazel discovered as hieroglyphics, implying some form of alien writing. In fact, Moore said, the tape had been purchased from a New York City toy factory, and the symbols on the tape were abstract, flower-like designs made to appeal to kids. The Air Force reports were dismissed by UFO proponents as being either disinformation or simply implausible. Though skeptical researchers such as Philip J. Klass and Robert Todd, who had been expressing doubts regarding accounts of aliens for several years, used the reports as the basis for skeptical responses to claims by UFO proponents. After the release of the Air Force reports, several books, such as Cal Korf's The Roswell UFO Crash, What They Don't Want You to Know, built on the evidence presented in the reports to conclude no credible evidence from any witness has turned out to present a compelling case that the object was extraterrestrial in origin. In 2001, journalist Guy P. Harrison interviewed Joe Kittinger, a retired U.S. Air Force colonel and one of the great aviation pioneers of the 20th century. Harrison asked Kittinger about Roswell. It never happened, Kittinger said and went on to describe the events involving the NYU balloon experiments. The so-called alien spaceship was that balloon. A lot of people want to believe it was aliens, and they want to believe there was a big cover-up. But I'll tell you, it never happened. What did happen, he said, is that high-altitude drops of human-like dummies contributed to the Roswell myth. Absolutely they did, he said. Those dummies we dropped from balloons were dressed in pressure suits, so they looked unusual. In the subsequent myth-making, says Frazier, one of the main sensationalist books, The Roswell Incident, by Charles Burlitz and William L. Moore, claimed the debris was from a flying saucer that passed over Roswell the evening of July the 2nd, 1947. But in fact, Brazel had found the debris much earlier, on June 14th, just 10 days after the NYU team had lost track of flight number four, headed toward his ranch. 
This blows the whole yarn out of the water, wrote skeptic James Mosley in his Saucer Smear newsletter. In the 1980s and early 1990s, the myth-making process really took off. More fantastic and wild stories emerged in a process similar to folklorists with stories building upon previous stories. And three out-and-out -out hoaxes were widely publicized, then later exposed. And many of the skeptics point to inconsistencies in witness statements. How many aliens were there? Was it three or five? Did only Marcel and Brazel collect the debris, as Marcel maintained? Or was there dozens of military personnel deployed to the site? Was there one alien craft or two? In the annals of American UFO history, few incidents have inspired as much fascination and speculation as the one in Roswell, New Mexico. And 75 years later, the story refuses to die. But behind all the UFO mania lies an uneasy truth, and it is this. The events that transpired that summer are anything but clear-cut, with admitted cover-ups and conflicting explanations, as well as outright hoaxes on both sides of the argument. Once again, we find ourselves in that precarious position of determining what to believe. Did a flying saucer crash at Roswell, New Mexico in 1947? Were alien bodies recovered? Was there a cover-up by the military? As usual in these cases, we have no concrete proof or evidence to present. There is no piece of wreckage with miraculous properties available for viewing at the Smithsonian. And the military has surely never produced anything tangible other than aged photos of military officers holding up weather balloon wreckage for the cameras. A deception claimed to be necessary to protect a classified project. Of course, that doesn't necessarily mean physical evidence isn't out there, somewhere unknown. As compelling as the lack of evidence is the numerous witness statements. Some have a ring of truth and come directly from those who were there and involved. Others are hearsay from second or even third-hand accounts. As I said at the beginning of part one of our story, you will need to make up your own mind on what you choose to believe. No easy task, I'm afraid, but hopefully one that makes you think about what could have happened all those years ago, when in 1947 the world believed a flying saucer had crashed in a remote part of the American Southwest. Postscript. The incident remains a defining aspect of the area's identity. The town of Roswell boasts a UFO museum and research center, a flying saucer-inspired McDonald's, and alien-themed streetlights. There's even an extraterrestrial family stranded in a broken-down UFO on the side of State Route 285, looking for a jump start. The incident became a significant part of the city's economy. Since 1996, Roswell has been the site of an annual UFO festival. The Roswell UFO Festival runs every year in early July, with events all over town. You can check out the UFOlogist Invasion, Galaxy Fair, music concerts, a 5K race, laser shows and sci-fi movies in the planetarium, a costume contest, a pet costume contest, and lots more. In our next episode, we travel to Hollywood, Broadway, and more to look into alleged curses affecting showbiz productions, and in some cases, with tragic impacts for the people involved. Were these just accidents and coincidence? Or was something more sinister and supernatural at work in these misfortunate productions? 
Where did the alleged supernatural curses come from? What did the witnesses report, and what do skeptics say? Join us as we look into unexplained showbiz curses next time on the Paranormal Factor Podcast. And now it's time for the episode quiz. Yep, quiz time. And here is your quiz for this week. What is a Foo Fighter? And we don't mean the music group. Is it A, a World War II UFO? B, a Korean War UFO? C, a cryptid hunter? Or D, an exorcist? Once again, what is a Foo Fighter? Is it a World War II UFO, a Korean War UFO, a cryptid hunter, or an exorcist? And the answer is... A. A World War II UFO. The term Foo Fighter was used by Allied aircraft pilots during World War II to describe various UFOs or mysterious aerial phenomena seen in the skies over both the European and Pacific theaters of operation. Formally reported from November 1944 onwards, Foo Fighters were initially presumed by witnesses to be secret weapons employed by the enemy. Many possible explanations have been put forward over the years, including they were electrostatic phenomena, similar to St. Elmo's fire, electromagnetic phenomena, or simply reflections of light from ice crystals. The term foo was borrowed from the comic strip Smokey Stover by a radar operator in the 415th Night Fighter Squadron, Donald J. Mears. Mears gave the Foo Fighters their name. He was from Chicago and was an avid reader of the comic strip, which was run daily in the Chicago Tribune. In a mission debriefing on the evening of November 27, 1944, Frederick Ringwald, the unit's S-2 intelligence officer, stated Mears and pilot lieutenant Ed Schleuder had sighted a red ball of fire that appeared to chase them through a variety of high-speed maneuvers. Ringwall said that Myers was extremely agitated and had a copy of the comic strip tucked in his back pocket. He pulled it out and slammed it down on Ringwald's desk and said, it was another one of those Foo Fighters, and stormed out of the debriefing room. Although Royal Air Force personnel had reported seeing lights following their aircraft from as early as 1942, American sightings were first recorded by crews from the 422nd Night Fighter Squadron stationed in occupied Belgium, during the first week of October 1944. At the time, they were believed to be Messerschmitt ME-163 rocket-powered interceptors, but those aircraft did not operate at night. The military took the sighting seriously, suspecting the mysterious sightings might be secret German weapons, but further investigation revealed German and Japanese pilots had reported similar sightings. Foo fighters were reported on many occasions from around the world. Here are some examples. Pilot Officer Brian Lumsden, a New Zealander flying with No. 3 Squadron's night flight, encountered two amber or orange-colored lights that followed him on an intruder mission over northern France in December 1942. One light was higher than the other, which appeared to rule out wingtip navigation lights from an aircraft. The lights pursued him until he reached the English Channel. Another pilot from his unit experienced a similar phenomenon the next evening but with a green light. Charles R. Bastian of the U.S. 8th Air Force reported one of the first American encounters with Foo Fighters over the Belgium-Netherlands area. 
He described them as two fog lights flying at high rates of speed that could change direction rapidly. During debriefing, his intelligence officer told him two RAF night fighters had reported the same thing. Career U.S. Air Force pilot Dwayne Adams stated he had witnessed two occurrences of a bright light which paced his aircraft for a half an hour and then rapidly rose into the sky. Both incidents occurred at night, both over the South Pacific, and both were witnessed by the entire aircraft crew. Senator Ted Stevens described an encounter from the time he was a fighter pilot in the World War II European theater. I was flying and there was an object next to me. I couldn't get rid of it. I slowed up. It was there. I sped up. It was there. I would dive and it would be there. I called. Nothing on the radar. British Air Ministry stated in March 1945, bomber command crews have for some time been reporting similar phenomena. A few of the alleged aircraft may have been ME-262s, and for the rest, flak rockets are suggested as the most likely explanation. The whole affair is still something of a mystery, and the evidence is very sketchy and varied, so no definite and satisfactory explanation can yet be given. A group of scientists, engineers, and former high-ranking Luftwaffe officers were questioned about wartime balls of fire reports by staff from United States Air Force and Europe's intelligence section in the early autumn of 1945. None of the 13 interviewed claimed any knowledge of a German secret weapons program that could have explained the sightings. So what were the bizarre Foo Fighters? That's still unknown, but they were certainly early examples of UFOs. Just four years later, the UFO craze would arrive in full force with sightings over Mount Rainier by civilian pilot Kenneth Arnold. Well, that'll do it for this episode. A theme song is Knockers by Cinco, courtesy of Upbeat Music. Hey, before you leave, if you could, please do me just two favors. First of all, if you did enjoy the show, please leave a like on your favorite listening application. And secondly, if you liked what you heard, please spread the word. Love to have some new listeners out there to join you. I'm your host, Richard Wright. Keep your eyes open for the unusual folks, and thanks for stopping by.